Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you uh, to turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For those visiting, again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We have been studying uh, the book of Hebrews just for a few weeks. We've been talking about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And now as we begin to apply the significance of Christ's supremacy, we are looking at the admonition that we be careful how we listen uh, to the word of Christ, which is uh, revealed to us in the scriptures, and that we be diligent in seeking that uh, we do not drift away. So we're going to pick up a little bit where we uh, were in verse 1, but also we're going to expand upon it uh, as we get through verses hopefully 2 through 4 as well. Let's uh, pray together. We want to depend on the Spirit to help in the hearing of the Word. And so let's pray and ask for the Lord to bless. Father, we do now thank you for the Scriptures that that every word that proceeds from your mouth is inerrant and infallible, that a man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that does proceed from your mouth, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, that uh, you have given us this word that cannot be broken, and that this word is truth. Now we, with the Lord Jesus, pray that you would sanctify us by this truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading is verses 1 through 4. Chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Amen. Now today, we want to divide these four verses into three parts. Number one, from verse one, we are going to again pick up the exhortation to beware of drifting. Beware of drifting. That means beware, boys and girls, of drifting away from the Lord. Number two, also from verse one, that we pay closer attention to what we've heard. We pay closer attention to what we have heard. And then from verses two through four, thirdly, that we realize that you have a greater revelation and a greater responsibility. Number three, that you realize you have a greater revelation 
and a greater responsibility. And we'll explain what we mean by having a greater revelation and responsibility. Let's look again at verse 1 here. Beware of drifting. This is point number 1. Beware of drifting. For this reason, the author of Hebrews says, we must pay closer, much closer, excuse me, attention to what we have heard. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now, the warning here is to watch out that you don't drift away. We began to be admonished last week that we pay attention to the gospel and pay attention to ourselves. But the reason for these admonishments was what? Because there is a human tendency, even among professing believers, to move from what is right and good. Even redeemed people, even you who are in Jesus Christ this morning, even you who have the dominion of your sin broken by the power of God in the Holy Spirit in your life. If you are a Christian, you are not presently under the dominion of sin. You are not a slave to sin if you are a Christian. You have been born from above. You've been born again. The Spirit of God, the first thing that the Spirit of God does is He regenerates your old nature. Your old nature is under the dominion of sin because of Adam. Adam transgressed in the garden, and everybody who has come from Adam, Cain and Abel, all the way to the last person in human history, is born under this slavery to, to sin. We are born in a bad condition. That the totality of our human nature is broken and, the, and is under an authority of sin and Satan, so that we do evil in this world. And that only the only way to be rescued from that is by the grace of God. So that once you become a believer, you do so, of course, because of the gift of God. By the power of the Spirit, the Spirit works in your life. He gives you the gift of faith. You put your faith in Jesus. And now you have a new nature. But even with that new nature, now you experience a new reality. And that new reality is a warfare, isn't it? It's a warfare now between the work of the Spirit in your life and the remaining corruption in your life. And so, you know, you have that struggle uh, that uh, the Apostle Paul describes, I believe, in Romans chapter 7. Yes, I believe Romans 7 speaks about the regenerate believer and the struggle that he or she experiences within her inner man. That, that, that I do the very things that I hate now. You see, you didn't used to hate it so much before you knew Christ. It was just your way of life. But now that dominion is broken and now the, the, the struggle is real, as they say, because of this new nature within you. But even among redeemed people and people who are Christians and people who have the Spirit of God within us, there is this temptation for us to drift away. You see, one of the things that the Bible sometimes does because it, it, it loves you and it, it wants pastorally the best for you is it will warn you. Yes, we acknowledge in one sense a person who is truly born again will end up being sanctified and glorified. But when we hear pastoral admonitions to beware of 
drifting or beware of idolatry or beware of whatever particular sin, the reason that is given is so that you will be prompted within yourself to say, Lord, please help me. You see, the the Christian response is not, oh, pastor, you don't need to warn me because I I walked an aisle. I I raised my hand. I I, I committed myself to the church in 1978 and once saved, always saved. But the Bible warns us against presumption here. The the response is not to be, oh, that doesn't apply to me. The, The response should be, Lord, help me. Uh, to heed these exhortations. Help me, Lord, not to drift. Because Boyd Miller wants to drift. Boyd Miller wants to drift. He's still got corruption within him. And he still wants to get out sometimes from under the easy and light yoke of Jesus Christ. Uh, He sometimes wants to listen to the suggestions of the evil one, that there's a better way. And sure, it would be easier. So those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this war within him, within us, and, and uh, we, we have to fight that battle. We do need to listen to the admonition not to drift. Now, if you are not in Christ yet, if you're not in Jesus Christ yet, well, that's where you begin. You, you begin to put your faith and trust in Christ. And to say, okay, I I do see, I have a sin problem, and I can't fix it myself. I can't atone for it. There's not enough time in my life to do good things that could ever make up for bad things, if even that were possible, which it's not. But even if it were, you don't have that kind of time. Your good works do not outweigh your bad works. That's not how justice works. Justice requires that your evil deeds be fully satisfied according to the demands of the law. And the Bible says you deserve death and eternal punishment. So what hope is there for you? Well, God has sent his son to take that punishment for you. And he says, here's the way out. You put your faith in Christ and he will live the life that you should have lived, but you didn't. He has already lived that life. He has the righteousness that you never had from the beginning. And he's giving it to you if you'll believe in him and trust in him. He'll give you that righteousness so that you can stand before a holy and just God and and be accepted in his sight. And that he can atone by the work he did on the cross for all the former sins of your life. That's where you got to start if you're you're not a Christian here this morning. Uh, that's, That's step one for you. Once you're in Christ, then you need to warn, be warned, don't drift. Don't drift. Now, the Bible is replete, though, with historical examples that back up why we need this admonition. Now, you take, for example, King Solomon. Now, are you going to see Solomon in heaven? The answer is yes, you will. Okay, But be warned. What happened even to the man who, at the time, had the most amount of wisdom ever given to a human being prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Even Solomon, with all his wisdom, still began to drift at the end of his life. So that in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, you can read about it, where because of the pressure of Solomon having many wives that he should never have married, foreign wives that he should never have taken to himself, who served other gods, 
he began to build altars to those various gods, and they're listed there. And he began to provide means for people to go and worship. This, of course, was a great sin. People might commend it today in our pluralism, but it's a violation of the first and second commandment. You shall have no other gods. And you shall worship the true and living God in the way that, and secondly, the way he's commanded. Solomon drifted, though. In his later years, Solomon turned not completely away from the Lord, but he did significantly turn away from the Lord. It hurt Solomon, and it hurt Solomon's family, and it hurt Solomon's nation. Solomon's nation was never the same after the introduction of that idolatry. Because what happens after Solomon dies? You have Rehoboam. And God brought a judgment on Israel because they followed Solomon into these sins and he brought forth a division of the kingdom between Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and a man named Jeroboam. And there it went even worse, as you remember from our study in the book of Kings, Jeroboam introduced more idolatry to the ten northern tribes, the two golden calves. And so the, the, the sin began to get worse, and the people of God began to spiral downward down the drain. They drifted away from the Lord until there was no longer any remedy for them but Exile. God brought first an exile judgment upon Israel in 722 BC with the Assyrian captivity. And then in 586 BC, he brought another judgment on the people of Judah because they too followed the ways of Israel into idolatry. Gideon drifted. What do we find in the book of Judges? We find God would raise up judges. And sometimes even these judges who were to point the people to God and to Christ would then begin to drift. Gideon, uh, in Judges chapter 6, verse 6, he's called by the Lord, right? As he's threshing out, uh, or I should say as he's actually, yeah, he's threshing out the wheat in the wine press because he's afraid that the enemies of God's people will see it and take it. And so he's hiding because it's a bad situation for the people of God in the day. And God says Lord, to Gideon, I'm going to use you. And I want you to begin with that, that public idol in your town square. And so Gideon goes, and in the middle of the night, he tears down the idol. And then God used him to bring about a lot of victories for the people of God in that day. But what happens later in Judges chapter 8, verse 22 and following, we learn that Gideon uh, stumbles in that he made, he asked for gold from everybody and he made an, a golden ephod, which led the people uh, astray. We, we have seen how the history of Israel and Judah was a downward history from its zenith in the days of David and Solomon. But even David drifted temporarily from the Lord. Now, he was rescued by God's grace. But we are told in the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that David, King David, this is a man after God's own heart. So listen, if David, who has a heart for the Lord, can drift, you and I can drift. We need to be careful. David 
is cut from the same cloth you and I are cut from. We're, we are all part of children of Adam. Well, David should have been going out to battle at the time when kings go out to war, but he's in bed at home, sleeping in. We're told that he gets up at the end of the day. And so we see that there's been a, a sluggishness, a laziness in David's life. And listen, when you lose discipline in one area of life, it tends to happen, spill over into other areas of your life. If, if you fail to buffet your body the way the scriptures tell you, it'll see if it doesn't have spiritual consequences for you as well. See, that we, we often find that if we are not disciplined in one area of our life, that lack of discipline has a tendency to permeate or to leaven into other areas of our life. So David is not doing what he should have been doing. He, he's sleeping in. Uh, he's indulging in his flesh. He gets up at the end of the day out of bed and he goes up onto his chamber roof and he looks out and he sees Bathsheba and commits adultery with her. One area of poor discipline led to other temptations and he fell into that most tragic sin and then he attempts to cover it up with murder of Uriah. And that's David, whose songs we sing in worship. In the New Testament, we have a man, we don't know a whole lot about him, but he's mentioned once in Philemon and once in Colossians, Philemon verse 24. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He signs off with some of the other helpers of the apostle Paul. Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And then this guy, and also Demas. So we don't know who Demas is. But Demas is there with, with the other helpers of the apostle in both Philemon and Colossians. And then when you get to 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, which is a later book than Philemon and Colossians. So the last letter of Paul, 2 Timothy. So it's a, later, it's a, a letter later in composition and what do we find? Demas has left. Demas, having loved this present world, is no longer with Paul in his ministry. He drifted. We see even how Peter and Barnabas began to drift. Uh, they, they drifted from the implications of the gospel. That the gospel it has broken down this barrier wall between Jew and Gentile. That as a Gentile puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they have the exact same righteousness that a Jew has when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the, the early lessons of the first century church were that both Jew and Gentile are clean in the sight of Jesus Christ. They both have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And therefore, at a horizontal level, they should have fellowship with one another. There should be no longer this segregation between Jew and Gentile as there was formerly in the days of the law. But even what? Even Peter and Barnabas, when the men from James come, who were Jewish in background, the Bible says they got nervous and they began to hold themselves aloof from the Gentiles because they didn't want to be censored by the Judaizers. And Paul says that he condemned them. He spoke to them publicly. 
and says, how is it that you can be doing this? He says, yes, we are not sinners from birth as are the Gentiles, but they are trusting in Jesus Christ and are as every much a child of God now as any Jew who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot therefore withhold fellowship from them. They were beginning to drift, not so much from the gospel itself primarily, but from the implications of the gospel. They were drifting. Now, if they had been left unchecked, it might have led to some kind of drifting from the gospel proper itself. Because sometimes, you know, our theology is impacted by our behavior. And therefore, um, if it had been allowed to continue, who knows what might have been, what have happened. But Peter and Barnabas both thankfully received that correction. And they turned back. You know, remember Peter, remember Peter was the first of the Jews to go into the house of a Gentile. You remember, Peter at one time was defending the fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. Remember, he came back to Jerusalem and they said, hey, we heard you were in the house of a Gentile. We heard you were in the house of Cornelius. And it was Peter who's defending the gospel and its implications, isn't he? Even Peter drifted from that later and had to be brought back. Do you see how easy it is for you and for me to drift You see why the scripture says, for this reason, we must pay attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Even the church at Ephesus had to be admonished by the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ says to the church at Ephesus, guys at Ephesus, great job. You saw the heretics for who they were and you resisted them. Great job. You've been faithful in your understanding of the Bible. Great job. Theologically, you are the most sound of my churches. Great job. But this I have against you. You're drifting. You are drifting from your first love. Jesus doesn't have your heart the way it once did. You've become estranged in your affections for Jesus. You're drifting. Repent, Jesus says. How many uh, have begun well with zeal for Christ and zeal for the house of the Lord only to drift and compromise in latter years? How many men have we known who were tremendous in their early years of ministry and at the end of their ministry, you almost wish, oh Lord, please don't let them say anything more wrong. Take them home, Lord. I can remember even some of the best saying some regrettable things in interviews and and I think, oh Lord. How many nations whose lines historically have fallen to them in pleasant places under the civilizing influence of the Christian gospel have despised their birthright and have drifted away from that which made them great as a nation in the first place. 
How many Western nations have drifted away? Like treacherous Esau of old, they sell their birthright of a Christian heritage to gratify their contemporary lusts in eating the blessings of their father's labors in the gospel. Nations can drift. Cultures can drift. We've seen that drift in our own country. I can remember, even as a child, where the grocery store, Ogletree's, was closed on Sunday because it was Sunday. It was the Lord's Day. And the fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Thou shalt not work. You, warrior, and the whole family, and the servants, etc. And then Kroger came. <laughs> and they were open on Sunday. You, you, uh, some of you have lived long enough. You can remember uh, a culture that was different. Now, not every way perfect. There were many sinful things decades ago. I'm not sitting here saying that the former days were better than these, except to say that as a nation, we understood the Lord's day. I had a uh, man in a ministry, a parachurch ministry, talk to me, and I was telling him, you know, we have a morning service and then we have an evening service. And he said, you have two services? Yeah. He said, you have two messages, different messages? Yeah. They're the same people who come in the evening as come in the morning? I said, yeah. He said, that's hardcore. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him, actually, that was normative across denominational lines 50 years ago. It just seems hardcore now. It's not hardcore. It's because the, the culture has drifted. The evangelical church has drifted. Listen, I'm glad the evangelical church believes in inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of the Scripture. But what good is infallibility and inerrancy if you don't practice it as a church? What good is it is, is saying, I believe in an inerrant Bible if you don't open it and read it? Or if your pastor doesn't say, hey, we got to have another service. No, I've had too much Bible today. I got 30 minutes this morning. I am full as a tick. Where is your hunger? Where is your thirst for righteousness? Do you know your Bible that well? But go through LaGrange tonight and look at the churches. See how many churches have lights on tonight. Well, we're in daylight savings. It might be hard, but in the winter... In the winter, on your way to church at 5.50 at night. What's happened? The church has drifted with the culture. The culture has lost the sense of the Sabbath, but so has the church. And, and that's where repentance needs to begin. It needs to begin, judgment begins with the house of Israel. The church needs to remember the Sabbath day first. And I've said this before, don't worry so much about who's the president of the United States if you're breaking the Sabbath. Whoever's elected to presidency isn't going to change the Sabbath. Republicans and Democrats agree on the Sabbath. They don't believe in it. Nor do the libertarians. 
If the church doesn't start believing in the Sabbath day, what does Jesus say? If the light loses its light, how great is the darkness? If the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be trampled upon men. The church doesn't believe in the Sabbath anymore. What's happening to the culture? The culture is putrefying. We've drifted. And, and, you know, the drift sometimes can be imperceivable. You know, kind of the classic frog in the kettle problem. You put the frog in normal water and then you cut the heat on. And the frog doesn't notice at first, you know. And it just gets a little warmer, a little warmer, a little warmer. And the frog's okay with it. And a little warmer, a little warmer. And then suddenly it's too late for him to do anything. And... and uh, you know, it's only if you've lived long enough, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, I do remember. Yeah, we had to, we had to have the lawn cut by Saturday because Sunday was church day, even if you didn't go to church. You didn't mow the lawn on Sunday. You know, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, there is no temptation but that which is common to men. So drifting is a common problem. Now, how can we prevent it in our own lives? We've been warned by the Scriptures not to drift, we do, that we should not drift away from it. So how do we do that? Well, we, secondly, pay closer attention to what you have heard. Pay closer attention to what you have heard. Now, I want to answer this by way of our catechism. If you have your hymnal there and you want to see the catechism question and answer for yourself, you can look at page 974 and page 975, question 90 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, one of the things that that means, by way of application, is that we give the... Uh, we give the importance it deserves of giving close attention to preaching and teaching of the Word of God. How do we keep from drifting away? We pay attention, the Scripture says, to what? What we have heard. That is, what we've been taught. What we've heard preached. What we were taught in our Sunday school classes. What we are taught in family worship. That which we have heard from the pulpit. We need to pay attention to it. Now, in question 90, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? I'll read the answer and I'll break it down for us. The answer to this question, how is the word to be read and heard? Remember, we're trying to say, see how we can... Um, Pay closer attention to the word. Here, the Westminster Divines are going to help you pastorally. All right, you ready? That the word may become effectual to salvation. That means simply here that the word has its best effect on you. All right, you want the Bible and what we're doing right now to have the most effect on your life for salvation? All right, they answer, we must attend thereunto with one, diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. That we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And I'm going to break that down for us by way of application. So number one, 
The word needs to be effectual. That is, we, we have a responsibility before God as we listen to preaching and teaching if we want that word to be efficacious in us. You don't get this by osmosis. You don't get it by showing up to church and then falling asleep. You've got to put a little sweat equity into this if you want to benefit from the preached word. Listen, Psalm 95, verse 7. I opened with Psalm 95, the opening verses in the call to worship. But did you know in Psalm 95, at the end, in verse 7, there is a warning. And the warning was what? That the people of God heard the word in one sense, but it did not help them. Look at, look at Psalm 95. Psalm 95 and verse 7. Psalm 95. I'll start at verse 6 here. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He's calling us to worship. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. We're the people of God. Come, worship God. But then he goes on and he says, Today, if you would hear His voice... Now that meaning, boys and girls, if you hear his voice in the word, not listening for some kind of audible sound coming from heaven, but if you would hear his voice as God has spoken to us in the Bible, he says what? Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and in the days of Mesa in the wilderness. What is Meribah and Mesa? Those are the times where the people of God were not trusting God. They were rebelling. They were complaining to Moses, have you brought us out here to kill us? That's how little trust they had in God. They saw the miracles in Egypt. They saw the wonder of the Red Sea being split. They walked through dry ground. They saw the fire and the cloud and the lightning and the voice of God at Mount Sinai. And then they have the audacity to say, oh, are we just going to be killed out here? Where's our food? Where's our water, Moses? If you brought us out here to die, they had no faith, did they? And the word didn't profit them. The word was not efficacious unto salvation. They died in the wilderness. Do you know you can die and go to hell sitting in church every Sunday? Because you're not hearing with ears that can hear. You're not applying faith and love to what is being taught. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. This was a problem in the latter prophet's day. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. See kids, even your pastor has to run through the books of the Bible to remember where to find it. Ezekiel chapter 33. Now look at verse 30. Ezekiel 33, verse 30. But as for you, son of man, this is the Lord speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, but as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens, that is the people of God, the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He says, but as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls, roast pastor, anybody? Okay. 
Your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now, let us hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. Now that sounds pretty good. Let's go and hear what Ezekiel has to say from the Lord. But listen to what God says about this. They come to you. They, they show up at church. They're present. They're accounted for. They're not AWOL on Sunday. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words. But what? They do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. They show up to church and they actually love to hear Ezekiel preach because he preaches with such power and authority. And it's, to them, it's like going to a music concert. And they are moved in their affections. And they are stimulated. And they taste of the power of the ages to come. But it doesn't change their life. It's like a rock put in water. And the outward part of the rock gets wet. But that inner part of the rock is as dry as dust and chalk. They aren't moved one whit towards repentance. Oh, they love good rhetoric. Oh, they love a good argument. Oh, they love to hear guys who can preach with some zeal and some fire in their bones. But they don't go home and get on their knees and say, Oh, God, forgive me, a sinner. They don't go home and say, Honey, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I've been treating you poorly. I've been letting the kids run all over you. They don't go home and, and, and say, Oh God, you know what I've been doing in secret and you know how shameful it is and how wicked it is. God, forgive me. Give me grace to change my ways. God, I've had a bad attitude. Help me, Lord. Lord, I, I haven't been very diligent at work. I've been phoning it in. I've been spending a lot of time on the internet rather than doing the work you've called me to do. God, help me. Nothing changes. They never go home and pray prayers like that. You know, in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, it was said of Herod that, Quote, Herod was afraid of John, John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. And it says that even for a while, John kept, excuse me, Herod kept John safe. Now listen to this. And when he, Herod, heard him, when Herod heard John the Baptist, he was very perplexed, but what? He used to enjoy listening to him. Herod liked listening to John the Baptist, but Herod beheaded John the Baptist because of the pressure of an unregenerate wife. 
Paul stood before Festus and King Agrippa. King Agrippa, Festus says, Paul, your, your learning has made you crazy. And King Agrippa, Paul then appealed to King Agrippa. Maybe King Agrippa will listen. King Agrippa, do you believe the word of God? I know that you do. He said, and King Agrippa said, thou almost persuadest me. And Paul says, I, I would that you were as me, except for these chains. An almost Christian. Now maybe he did become a Christian later, we don't know, but. But he came close. He was near the kingdom. Did he cross over? We'll see. So the word sometimes can be preached, but it's not effectual. And that, that was the problem. Be diligent. Make sure that you are profiting from the Bible and from preaching and teaching as you ought to be. So the, the Westminster divines say, well, how do we do this? How do we become people who profit under the word of God? They say, first of all, attend with diligence. Be diligent to the listening. Listen closely. Note-taking, not a bad idea. Not commanded. I don't want to go further than Scripture itself. But if it helps you, take notes. But remember, whether you take notes or not, that you are listening to the Bible being taught and read. You are listening to the Scripture. This is not like we would listen to the television or the radio in our car. We're to be giving full attention to this. This means... You know, it, among other things, it means you guys need to get a good night's sleep when providentially possible on Saturday. How many teenagers have I seen over my 29 years who have got the heavy eyes on Sunday morning because they're staying out too late? Uh, we, we make our kids go to bed on school nights. Why? We want them to perform well at school. We want them to have good attitudes at home. How much more when it comes to the church? So sometimes the attendance with diligence needs to begin before the Lord's Day, not just when we are at the 11 o'clock hour, but also the Westminster divines say that there must be preparation and prayer. Now think about it this way. How many of you have been to a football game and those athletes just get out of their car, put their uniform on, and immediately go and start playing the game. Never. Okay? At least not at the highest level. Maybe at the peewee level. <laughs> but the serious guys, what do you watch them do for almost an hour before the game even starts? They're stretching. They're jogging back and forth. They're warming the body up. They're limbering up. They're making sure that every muscle in their body is, is ready to go at the highest level and do it fast. And they don't want to be injured. They don't want to tear a muscle. And the way they have to do that is they, they have to, to warm up. And, and, and they take time to do it. Listen, it, what is true of the body is sometimes true of the soul. And, it, and if you are just... Oh, man, oh, go, 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 go. Get in the car, get in the car. You get here, and you're strung out. You haven't warmed up. Now, God may bless anyway, because he's gracious. 
And maybe he knows, you know, you had a hard night. The kids are throwing up all night, whatever. God is gracious. But listen, you'll get more out of church if you do some warm-up exercises before you get to church. A little Bible reading, a little prayer, sing a hymn. You know, even Saturday night, stretch the soul a little bit. And that way, when you get here, you don't feel all harried. Um, avoid the rush. Try to have a quiet day, a relaxed day. Try and slow the day down. Lay out the kids' clothes. Try and get as much meal prep done on Saturday as possible. I have always said the crock pot is God's Sabbath saver. (laughs) You stick the meat in Saturday night, plug the thing in, voila, you wake up. It's there. Prayer and preparation. Fourthly, the uh, Westminster Divines say that if we're to hear the word of God with profit, receive it with faith and love. Faith and love. That is, we're not just passively listening, but as we listen, we're applying faith to what we hear. We're believing the scriptures. Now, yes, you must be a Berean and you must check what is preached with the word of God itself. But we receive that which is according to the word with faith and with love. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. You're not pleasing God sitting in that pew and not listening. You're displeasing God. You're not pleasing God sitting in the pew, letting your mind wander. You you are to receive the Bible as the word of God not sitting in judgment of it, sitting under the judgment of it. That includes me too as a preacher. We are all under the word. We're not sitting in judgment of the word. We believe that the scripture to be the word of God. Religion is not a hobby for us. Moses said that the word of God is your life. We are to be all about the Word when we sit, when we stand, when we are at home, when we go out, when we rise up, when we lie down. And then finally here, and I'm not getting to my third point today, as you can see. We are to lay up the Word read and preached in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We're not to be like the people in Ezekiel's day who went and they heard Ezekiel preach, but it was like water off their back as soon as they got home. We are to be like Mary, who when she heard the word of God, she treasured these things. She pondered these things, we're told, that she heard. She hid them in her heart. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law or thy word. It is my meditation. That is, we reflect on what God has done for us in the preaching of his word. That is, my friends, the means that God primarily uses. Now, there are others, but that is the means that God primarily uses to keep us from drifting. Well, let's go.